0: Hey everybody, I'm James Gunn. I'm the director and co writer of Guardians of the Galaxy, and this is my commentary on the film. Here at the beginning, we have uh, young Peter Quill and his Sony Walkman. When I first started writing this screenplay, uh, I really, one of the first things I thought of was using this Sony Walkman as Peter Quill's attachment his emotional attachment to earth and his mother and the songs in a way i think are the character of his mother throughout the film here we have greg henry who plays quill's grandfather greg henry who has been in most of my films he's all of my films actually he was the mayor jack mccready and slither and he was detective john Felkner and super and he is just a, a really amazing guy and wonderful actor who can do almost anything the kid is played by a, a, a boy by the name of Wyatt Olaf, Olaf, who is a great kid, and uh, he loves to cry on film and do what we call a uh, guttural wail. He was always excited to do a guttural wail, which we'll, you'll see in a second. Where have you been found? Laura Haddock is the mother, and... She actually had a bit role in Captain America where she played a fan who wanted his autograph. But there is no relationship that I know of. Maybe that could be her grandmother or something, but she's too young. She grew up in the 1970s. We used a little bit of digital effects to make Laura look a little bit more sickly and thin than she is in real life. Um, And it's, uh, it's a pretty strange way. I think that so many people come to this movie because they... Want to see something fun and different and colorful, and also at the same time, we like to take people by surprise and give them something different than what we expect. So when they came to see the movie, and there's this very sad scene at the beginning, um, I think it it gives them a little bit of the heart that's in the movie, uh, and starts us off on a rather serious path, and then we'll go into something a little bit more fun in a second. At least until your daddy. We hear uh, Meredith Quill, his mom, talk about. His father is a being composed of pure light, and there'll be spoilers throughout this commentary, and of course, one of the spoilers is that Peter Quill's father is someone from outer space. In the comic books, he's Jason. I'm not real fond of the name Jason, and I'm, I'm, I think that uh, the character is, is probably not the same as who he is in the comic books. I know who he is, but I can't give that away, because that's safe for the next movie. There's Dr. Fitzgibbon. Oh, there's the guttural whale right there. There's a character named Fitzgibbon in every single one of my movies named after my good friend Larry Fitzgibbon. And that's Dr. Fitzgibbon, as he's credited in the credits. It's hard to work in a name Fitzgibbon in a movie that's composed of almost entirely outer space scenes. Here we have him run out. He's about to uh, get abducted by a gigantic spaceship. And this gigantic space shop is something we call an M-ship. That's the type of ship it is. It's actually the exact type of ship that the Milano is, a Ravager vehicle. There are two different types of M-ships. The larger cargo M-ship, which is what the uh, Milano is, and the smaller M-ship, which rockets Warbird at the end of the movie, is, uh, is that. Here we have the Marvel logo coming in after the opening, and that actually was an idea by Kevin Feige. Kevin Feige is the head of Marvel, and he's probably my biggest collaborator throughout this entire film, along with a bunch of other people. Um, but he's probably my, my number one collaborator on this movie. And it was his idea to have the Marvel logo come up after uh, the kid was abducted, um, which helps to ease us into a completely different environment so that it's not too jarring. And it's very interesting, because early test audiences saw it where the Marvel logo wasn't there, and they thought it was very jarring, uh, this change. And all we did was change the, just, just where the Marvel logo was and they found it um, a lot easier to, uh, to move from one place in time to another. And we have the names of all my friends who acted in the movie, who I've become very close to. I often say that, you know, there's a lot of oddballs in this movie and this is a movie about oddballs and it's about oddballs who become a family and all of us uh, became a, a pretty close family over uh, the course of this movie lee pace for instance who plays ronan the accuser is just about the nicest guy there's michael rooker michael rooker has been in all of my films he plays yondu in this movie he's fantastic karen gillen here we have a holographic map device which peter quill has this map device was given to him by the broker there's some backstory to what's happened here here it shows him the location of where the orb is um because somebody obviously had this map device to show them where the orb was from years years past, many, many years past. Um, the backstory that was in the script that we, we cut some dialogue from the film is that this is an ancient planet, uh, Morag, that had a pretty advanced civilization many thousands of years ago. That's my dog, Dr. Wesley Von Spears, right there, who <laughs> was playing with a little girl. He was a very good actor. My assistant, Simon Hatt, was wearing green jumpsuit uh right behind him uh, while they were doing that um anyway so this this ancient planet morag had a pretty advanced civilization and uh it was destroyed probably through some sort of global warming and is covered by oceans but the oceans recede every 300 years and so peter quill has been waiting for this time to go and get this orb and yondu found out about it from the broker and here peter quill is ripping off yondu and going to find the orb. Sony Walkman, which hooks us up back to Earth. And here we have Come and Get Your Love by Redbone. Fantastic song. Probably the song I've heard the most. And this is the biggest tonal shift in the movie, which I think helps to give the audience a sense of the different sorts of emotions we're playing with in the movie and and, and helps to ease them into the tonal shifts throughout the movie, which are are a little bit more mellow than this one. These are Orloni. There are two small creatures in the movie, Orloni and Fisaki. Fisaki are the ones that later eat the Orloni. Orloni are amphibious creatures that have gills, but can also breathe out of water. And so they're some of the only creatures that survive the lowering of the seas of Morag. Peter Quill is going to Morag sooner than is safe, um, which is a reason why he's able to get the orb before Yondu is or before Korath is. We have Jeremy Latcham, one of the executive producers, and Victoria Alonso, who is the uh, post-production producer. Really important people to the making of this film. Jeremy Latcham and Jonathan Schwartz are the two producers I met with uh, almost exactly two years ago to talk to them um, about this idea for a movie they wanted to do called Guardians of the Galaxy, and that was um, that was something that, when they first brought it to me, I thought it was a pretty strange idea, considering there was a talking raccoon in it, and nobody knew who the Guardians of the Galaxy were, and driving home from that meeting, uh, I really didn't think I was going to do it, but all of a sudden I had this burst of inspiration of what I would do with the movie to make it my own. And I saw an opportunity there to create a movie that wasn't necessarily the same as the movies that I grew up loving, like Raiders of the Lost Ark and Empire Strikes Back. But that gave people the same sort of feelings that those movies gave to me and to create something that was bright and colorful, a true space opera in every sense with music. And, uh, and visually I understood where the movie was coming from with these colors and and, and still retaining some of the grittiness of uh, movies of the past 20 or 30 years that have seemed to take out all the color from science fiction films. My name is Peter Quill. Okay? Dude, chill out. This scene was actually really hard to shoot. This was one of the very first scenes we shot. So uh, Chris Pratt, who plays Peter Quill, who's my very close friend today, um, was getting into the groove of playing the character. And we hadn't shot any of the talking scenes yet. It was the first talking scene we had shot in the movie. We'd already shot some of the exterior running stuff on Morag that takes place in a second. But this stuff took some kind of getting used to of exactly where we were with the actors and what kind of performances we were getting out of them and and striking this balance between something that was comic but also something that was realistic. Like, I remember talking about Black Hawk Down in this movie where he's being surrounded by the Sakaran. Also is a bit of fun. All those Sakaaran voices are pretty much uh, me. I'm doing almost all the Sakaaran voices in the movie except for my assistant, Simon Hatt, is doing a few of the Sakaaran voices as well. There you get it. That's us. Sakaaran are trapped by the magnet. Peter Quill uh, doesn't have any superpowers, but I did say often while filming, if he had a superpower, it was the fact that he was able to screw up completely and get messed up and trip and fall and then regain his composure you know, quickly to do something sort of heroic, which is what he's doing here. He's going back and forth between something really cool and something uh, really not cool, because he's kind of an oaf at the same time as he's very cool. There's a vulnerability to Chris Pratt and his performance that I think makes him a little bit different from other movie stars. And uh, he wasn't necessarily a movie star when this we started shooting this movie, but he certainly is now. This scene was a scene that I actually storyboarded. This is one of the uh, scenes in the original script by Nicole Perlman, and I uh, storyboarded this sequence um, for uh, my pitch to Marvel as a director, and so those are pretty much my storyboards that I did back in 2012 uh, that have retained, uh, you know, exactly that quality from the original. This is a a, a great uh, woman by the name of Malia Creeling, who is uh, a really cool, um, really cool girl, and uh, who plays Barit. Barita is a character from the Marvel comics. A lot of the characters in the movie have names of characters from the comics. Sometimes they're very similar to them and sometimes they're very different, but I'm a big comic book fan and I like throwing all those little Easter eggs in there so people have something to, to play with. This sort of landscape backed by the 1970s music is, uh, is really something that was one of my original inspirations. There's a the troll doll, which we'll see at the end of the movie protesting the recent peace treaty signed by the Kree Emperor and Xandar's Nova Prime. Making uh, the first act of a movie like Guardians of the Galaxy is very difficult because you need to (laughs) explain to the audience who all these different characters are, what their goals are, and at the same time, um, you know, explain that there are these alternate worlds and what those cultures are, and there's a bunch of gobbledygook names coming at them. Yandu and Xandar and Morag and Ronin and you know uh, Cree um Barit and it gets confusing for an audience so one of the most difficult challenges of making this film was trying to make it as simple as it could possibly be for the audience These are all my friends that's my brother Sean and then behind him is a, a guy by the name of Dave uh, Yaravesky, Dave Yarvo who's uh, one of my best friends in the world and the guy in that blue makeup behind Rooker. Well no that guy acting weird back there is my friend Nick Holmes. So all my friends just happen to look like Ravagers. I suppose, and this is their little little piece of the movie. And of course Rooker and I are good friends for a long time. Rooker is a crazy maniac, and when I created this when I wrote the role of Yandu, the Yandu was not in the original script. I added him to the script. Um, I wrote the role specifically for Michael Rooker, and I was really happy that Marvel let him be in the movie. I wanted to, Rooker is often cast as someone who is very tough and silent and stoic, and I wanted to give him a role that showed this sort of maniacal part of himself that he has. He's a big laugher, and I often refer to him as a a three-year-old in a 50-year-old buff body, and, uh, and that's what he is. Here we're introduced to Ronan. Ronan's backstory is that he was— uh, there have been many, many millennia of war between the Xandarians and the Kree. They're very different cultures. The uh, Xandarians are very progressive. The Kree are very traditional. Um, and for years and years and years, they have been at war. And recently, a new Nova Prime came in, who is the head of uh, the Xandarian culture. She's, she's both president and sort of the, uh, you know, primary general on the planet. Mil- they're, they are militaristic despite their progressiveness. And she signed a peace treaty with the Kree so that they would no longer attack each other after these this thousand years of warring. And Ronan is a fundamentalist Kree who sticks to the old ways, his traditions are very old, Uh, he's filled with a lot of rage because his father, and his father before him, and his father before him, have all died in this Kree-Zandarian war. And there's a lot of backstory there, Uh, you know, and he's not happy about this. He thinks that that the Kree are just letting the Zandarians get away with it, by not murdering um not continuing this war so he's angry and probably not completely unfounded in certain ways probably there are things that we don't know that the zanderians have done that have not been completely great and there we meet zoe saldana as gamora for the first time who's become uh, a really dear friend and uh karen gillen as nebula their sisters they have a complicated relationships and uh i really I, lo- I love the character of Nebula. Nebula is a character who was designed early on, and I needed an actress to fit exactly how the design looked because I, I love the design by a uh, guy by the name of uh, Charlie Wynn who did a lot of the viz dev work, visual development work on this movie. Here we have Bradley Cooper as Rocket. Um, we hear him for the first. There's Stan Lee, who of course was my hero as a child. The Godfather of all Marvel characters, and it uh, was my biggest hero that I ever had in my entire life. And it was a great joy to be able to work with him and put him in this little role of this movie. there we meet Groot for the first time. Groot is the soul of the movie in a lot of ways. He's the only one of the Guardians that has any sort of sweetness to him. The rest are all pretty damaged. Forty thousand units. we're gonna be. This scene was very difficult to get right, actually, um, with with Rocket and Groot. It's the first time we see Rocket and the first time we see Groot, and it was difficult getting them both to the place where they looked, you know, good enough. I'm 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 a stickler with visual effects, and uh, with prosthetic effects as well. This is a guy by the name of Chris Fairbanks who plays The Broker, and he just turns in an amazing performance. I, I wish he would get noticed more for it, and I hope that we get to use him in future Guardians films uh, because he is just the easiest guy to work with, such a sweet, uh, loving man. Um, a British guy, we shot uh, we shot Guardians of the Galaxy over a period of like five months in London, England, in a, in a few studios, Shepperton Studios, Pinewood Studios, Long Cross Studios, this set was actually, I can't even remember which studio it was at. Probably, probably, uh, probably Shepperton. Who was it? Long Cross. I just looked at my assistant and he told me. Anyway, um, yeah, Chris is a fantastic actor. And here we have Chris meeting Zoe for the first time, Quill meeting Gamora. It's another very difficult scene to cut together. What happened? They're both really good in this scene, but this day was rough, and it was very, very hot on these days. Um, It was uh, nearly 100 degrees in London, just burning hot. Uh, We shot over a period of a few days. We had, you know, a couple hundred extras, which you see a lot of in the background, all in these alien makeup. And on the first day, they'd all keep all their big costumes on. On the second day, parts of their costumes started coming off, and by the third day, on this set we'd walk over to where all the extras were being held the extras holding area and they would all be in their underwear that's no joke they'd just be in their underwear with their yellow faces and prosthetics on the whole idea of this scene was is a you know our first true action scene in the movie um i guess besides the the chase and the milano getting hit by the fountain and it was just to have each of the characters having one up over each other one after the other they're all pretty smart and pretty good in their own ways they're all good at fighting and they're also kind of doofuses in their own ways. so this is about them each you know being able to triumph and then get their comeuppance one after the other as they meet each other for the first time there's a girl up there in blue samara who's a really uh cool actress and she was one of the coolest looking characters in the movie and uh, we unfortunately cut her role from the film as we did a lot of the smaller characters because it just seemed to slow things down but there was a moment where Chris stopped in the middle of all this and uh, sort of was came on to her and she liked it. you got to be kidding. Me. Here we have Gamora Sort of being very very mean to Groot and chopping off his arms she's kind of a jerk and you'll see in later scenes that uh Groot really holds it against her and uh doesn't doesn't like Gamora for a while in the movie because she beat the crap out of him like how much this is gonna hurt <laughs> that always made me laugh when uh Chris was doing his wobbly falling thing it's a, Vin Diesel plays Groot. He's he's amazing. Um, he only has uh, five words that he says throughout the entire movie, and yet he says them with uh, such aplomb. And he is a fantastic, fantastic voice actor who really inhabits this character. And we had a lot of different people in early versions of the movie um, do I am Groot. There's John C. Riley, by the way. And uh, I did I Am Groot. We had one of our visual effects artists who had a deep voice do I Am Groot. We had Christian who played Groot on set doing I Am Groot. We had my brother, Sean, doing I Am Groot. And, you know, they were all fine. Uh, And the character was really compelling to look at, but it wasn't until Vin Diesel came in and started doing the voice that that character seemed to completely become himself and to fill up completely. And it is due to the fact that there is just some magic in Vin's voice that fits so well with that character. And uh, I think at times it's an undervalued part of how beautiful that character is. And there's a reason why Groot is many people's favorite character, if not most people's favorite character who sees the movie. One of the great joys of this movie for me was working with Glenn Close. She is such an intense actress. I say she has 10,000-pound eyeballs. I love working with her, and she's such a warm and wonderful human being. There's Peter Serafinowicz, and the, the pretty girl is one of my best friends in the world, Michaela Hoover. Those were fun days shooting that stuff. Peter Serafinowicz is a really funny guy. You may have seen him in Shaun of the Dead or some of his online stuff, which he does, which is very funny. Um, we actually followed each other on Twitter before he came in for this movie, and that definitely was part of the reason that I was so interested when he auditioned. This sequence was something that um, we cut from the movie for a while, uh, because we didn't know we needed all of it, but we did in the end need all of it. It explains a lot of stuff. It used to be a little bit longer. This thing with uh, Peter giving the finger is very interesting, because uh, that was something that a lot of the funniest moments in the movies are are a a back and forth between me and Chris Pratt. So Chris Pratt did the finger thing one time when we shot it and he did the winding of the finger and the finger comes up and then he made this sort of surprised look on his face. And, uh, you know, we took a break and I talked to him and I said, let's let's do that same thing where you wind up your finger and be surprised and then comment on how you're so surprised about, you know, your finger having gone up and and apologize for it. Um, And uh, that's how that came about. And there's a lot of moments like that in the movie with Chris. He's very, very good at improving. So this orb has a real Ain't no thing like me set me is one of the most quoted things to me in the movie. And the original uh when we originally shot the movie, Quill starts singing the Tigger theme to uh Rocket There, but for some reason it just didn't didn't work very well. Anyone anyone knows who you are. Yeah, we know who you are. Who is she? I'm Groot. Yeah, you said that. I wasn't retrieving the orb for Ronin. I was betraying him. I had an agreement to sell it to a third party. Here we have Gamora explaining that she is betraying Ronin. Uh, she wasn't getting the orb for Ronin. Um, what is Giving Tree here? Well, he don't know talking good like me and you. So his vocabulistics is limited to I and M and Groot. Exclusively in that order. The irony there is that Rocket is explaining that Groot doesn't speak so well, and yet Rocket's own vocabulary is completely wrong. His, his grammar is wrong. His, he's making up words like vocabulistics. This is uh, the mean guard played by Spencer. Spencer was fantastic. We couldn't believe, like, we got this magic out of this this great big dude that came in um, and we just sort of we, we cast him because of his face. Frankly, he was a big, huge guy that had a great face. And it's hard casting guys against Chris Pratt because Chris Pratt is huge. It was one of the difficulties we had in casting Drax because Chris is you know over six foot two and he is just an incredibly big guy. So casting other actors around him that look as if they're any threat to him whatsoever is very difficult. And so when we found Spencer, we kind of cast him because he was so big and he just is really funny in the movie and we like uh, his performance. This is a really important moment for me. This is when when Chris sees for the first time that Rocket has been tortured. He's been messed with his back. There's something terrible has happened to this character and this he's more than just a funny talking animal. Yeah, it's a very, very important moment in the movie. And Chris's performance is very, very good there. And the animation uh, by Framestore, the CGI animation is just some of the best in the movie. Framestore were the company that developed Rocket and his look, and uh, just some of this stuff is just wonderful, wonderful. Here we have a shot of Lloyd Kaufman next to my assistant Simon Hat. Lloyd Kaufman is the founder uh, of Troma Studios the world's oldest independent film company. They created such movies as Toxic Avenger and Class of Newcomb High, and they gave me my first job ever. He hired me for $150 to write a movie called Tromeo and Juliet, and that was my first film ever, and it taught me a lot about filmmaking. Uh, Everything about the brass tacks of filmmaking from writing a screenplay to location scouting to casting to actually directing actors and filming love scenes and... Then uh, afterwards, actually having to put a movie into theaters and and work on the poster art and all of that stuff, I just learned everything about filmmaking from *Trauma*. That is Nathan Fillion doing the voice of this character. Nathan Fillion is known by many fans uh, from his roles in uh, *Firefly* or his roles *Castle* on ABC, and also as the character Bill Party in my film *Slither*. Like Greg Henry and Michael Rooker. Uh, And the voice of Rob Zombie, Nathan Fillion, has been in every single one of my movies, and so this one is no different. It got out very early that Nathan Fillion had a cameo in this movie, and a lot of people hoped he was Nova, which he isn't, or some other big role, which he is not. He is simply the monstrous dude. But one of the great things about casting Nathan as this monstrous dude is that he will... um, At a later time, we could potentially put him in a bigger role within the Marvel universe where he doesn't just get his nose ripped apart by Groot and then is done. I love how Gamora's green skin looks against the red in this cell. The production designer on this film is a guy by the name of Charlie Wood. He is another one of my biggest collaborators in the film. He's a fantastic talent and he really understood where I was coming from and what I wanted to do with this movie from a visual sense. This is a scene inspired by the TV show Locked Up Abroad. I noticed, I'm a big fan of the TV show Locked Up Abroad, and I notice a lot of times when people are actually locked up in other countries, they uh, don't have their own cells. They actually have to sleep surrounded by a bunch of other people, which seems much worse than having your own cell to me. So I thought that would be funny for Peter Quill to have to sleep. And that is Mush Face Rocket. That is based on my dog, Dr. Wesley Von Spears. Who gets mush face a lot of times when he sleeps and it took a long 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 time to get that visual effect shot right and framestore must have done him you know 50 iterations of it here we have dave batista as drax the destroyer and dave is just he came in and auditioned for the first time and i i couldn't believe how much he was able to do with the character Drax is such an interesting character because he is completely humorless, but he's also very funny because of that. Uh, So there's a lot of comic timing you need. And at the same time, he is uh, such a physical presence, and he also has a lot of rawness of emotion. And Dave Bautista came in and just knocked it out of the park. He's just a fantastic actor and also happens to be one of the nicest guys in the world former wrestler when he auditioned i had no idea who he was i don't know anything about wrestling so i did not know who dave batista was family to Ronan or thanos zoe uh, was often having to say the name of thanos in the movie and for some reason she couldn't get it straight she kept saying thanos or some other pronunciation <laughs> and i had to remind her before it became like a mental block and i had to remind her before every take how to pronounce the thanos i don't think this is the best way to go about it are you not the man that here we find out that uh in a second that drax is completely literal and doesn't understand any sort of anything outside of other than just uh exactly what you say he doesn't understand metaphors or similes or anything gestures i was trying to get information and we're seeing oscarian tentacles needles for teeth i think i'm seriously interested in that there were more Asgardian jokes in this scene that I cut from the scene, and sometimes I wonder if that was a mistake or not. Because uh, Rocket would be very dis Rocket became sort of distracted by the fact that uh, Quill had slept with an Ascaverian, which seems very disgusting to him. Oh no, it's a symbol. There we go. Dave doesn't get what's going on. In all honesty, to me, this scene is where the movie really gets going we've 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 given the audience their medicine we've we've taught them who these characters are where they came from what the basic planets are what the basic you know who are the good guys who are the bad guys and at this point in time it's also where the group is together or at least we meet the last member of the group for the first time and this is where the movie really starts and really starts to 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 take its form and from here on out, I'm always happy when I'm sitting in a theater with people and this scene happens uh, because from here on out, it just is a fun ride for the audience. That's a character by the name of Malika Dar, who's uh, played by Alexis Rodney, who is a fantastic actor. Um, and uh, the, uh, that was my favorite knife line. Uh, was not in the script, but it was uh, something that I thought of when I was sitting in the tent and went and whispered in Alexis's ear. Malakadar is also a character from Marvel Comics, and uh, I think was a I think he was in the kiln actually as a prisoner. That orb is my opportunity to get away from Thanos and Ronin, If you free us. We had a lot of problems setting up the fact that Gamora was betraying Thanos and Ronan. It was something we had problems with in early test audiences. So trying to get it right in the edit was a a difficult process. You have been betrayed. We had a few great editors on this film, including uh, Fred Raskin and uh, Craig Wood, who uh, who really were just two more fabulous collaborators. That's the other, uh, played by Alexis Denisoff, who is in The Avengers. And um, he is one of the only things that connects us to The Avengers, along with Thanos in a second, who we'll see for the first time. Thanos is voiced by Josh Brolin. Um, who came in and did a, a terrific job. Uh, Josh Brolin also motion captured uh, the character of Thanos. Here we see uh, Ronan is about to kill the other, which shows you how intensely powerful Ronan is because uh, the other was able to push around Loki at times. So the fact that Ronan kills him so easily is intense. Although, we, here we have Karen Gillan. This is probably my favorite Karen Gillan as Nebula scene. Because she's definitely not too happy with this. First ever appearance of Thanos in the Marvel Universe. It was pretty fun to write this character and help to create him for the screen. Because I know he will be a larger part of the Marvel Universe in the, the future. At the same time, we also kind of had to shoehorn him into this film a little bit. Because he doesn't have a whole lot to do with the plot. Uh, but, uh, you know, we're setting up a, a larger universe here. We're not just telling one story. Uh, and I think for the most part, you, we, we stick to our story. I love Karen right here. She's funny and sexy and nonchalant. And you get a lot about who Nebula is there. Let's head to the kiln. I love Thanos' smirk here. Like I said... Josh Brolin is motion capturing Thanos, and a lot of times people bring up you know, uh, the motion capture of Rocket and Groot, and it, it should be made clear that neither Rocket or Groot were uh, never motion captured, and they can't really be motion captured. Rocket has a face that is very different than a human face, and if you tried to motion capture a human's face onto Rocket's face, it just ends up looking very strange. So, uh, Rocket's... Uh, Actions are a, a combination of a few things. Um, number one, uh, we have a, a, you know hundreds and hundreds of animators who worked on Rocket, and they're actors because they are creating this character. Secondly, in a scene like this, uh, my brother Sean Gunn played Rocket on set, and he's a very, very important part of the overall filmmaking process because he set down the energy and the dynamic for Rocket between the actors. The other actors treated Sean as if he was a member of the team. And in a scene like this, there's a lot of Sean's actions. We mo- we shot and motion captured, not, not motion captured, motion referenced everything that Sean did on set. And a lot of this acting is, is Sean's. Um, and we also, uh, videotaped everything that bradley cooper did when he was reading the character and a lot of that we used in the movie um and then if those guys didn't do anything that that was exactly what i wanted i would just videotape myself with my iphone and send it to the uh animators so there's a lot of people that go into creating uh rocket and groot and it, it is, they are. I think it's one of the reasons why I love the characters so much and feel so attached to them because they do, in a way, become their own organic selves. Uh, you know, because they are the combination of so many people's works. They become themselves. It's a strange All thing. This is the kill and escape sequence. I think I should point out. Uh, Tyler Bates' marvelous score here in this scene. He did such great work on this movie and people talk a lot about the wonderful soundtrack in the film and there's great 70s songs in this movie and just last week it it was number one on iTunes. Um, But Tyler Bates' score is just majestic and I wanted a score that had a great theme which we'll hear in a second which sort of harkens back to the movies I loved as a kid again like the Superman theme, or the Star Wars theme, or the Jaws theme, themes that you went home humming and you could really remember. And I think the Guardians theme is like that. Here we have one of my favorite moments in the movie, where we really get what we want, a raccoon with a big machine gun shooting robots In an angry group, Pissed off that they've been shooting him. And that's one of the best shots in the movie, by the way, animation-wise, when Rocket's laughing. I'll need this. Good luck. It's internally wired. I'll figure something out. Drop the leg! You know, my, my experience on making movies is there's always one scene or sequence which comes out fully formed. It's not necessarily the easiest sequence in the film, but it's usually the one that it's where I really feel like I've got a hold of the screenplay. And when I wrote the prison escape sequence in the script, this scene was that. It just came out. It's It has changed almost not at all since my very first draft of the screenplay where this, this scene was written for the first time as a prison escape sequence. There was an escape from prison in the original script, but I, I don't think it had a, uh, they didn't really escape. I think they somehow, I can't remember what happened, but it wasn't this escape and it was none of Rocket figuring this way to get out of the movie or get out of the, the, uh, the kiln. And uh, and then while I was writing the sequence, I was draw I draw little storyboards, I draw little pictures of what the shots will be. And I had my script with the little shots of the prison escape in there. And a lot of those are, you know, are still what is in the movie. Here we have Tyler Bates' Guardians theme, which I really dig. There we go. First appearance of the Guardians together, not so together yet. So, from there, we took the little drawings that I did, and then we had a fabulous storyboard artist by the name of David Krentz come in and do actual versions of my drawings, which other people could understand, and also add his own flavor to it. David Krentz is one of the storyboard artists I, uh, you know, really liked working with the most. And he drew out the whole sequence, and then we animated the whole sequence uh, with, uh, you know, how are we gonna leave? And that's what the scene is. The scene really hasn't changed much from that time. It's almost exactly the same. I have a plan. I have a plan. The kiln itself is a, an amazing set. This is a huge, huge set. It's composed of over 350,000 pounds of steel. And the only way we could afford to make a, a, a set so big, it actually went all the way around, um, was to... Uh, was to you know create it and then melt all the steel down and sell it back so that we could afford, afford to make the set. But it's a fantastic uh, work of design by uh, Charlie Wood and his team, production design team. Probably only bettered for me by the Milano set, which is really probably my favorite set, most beautiful work of art in the whole movie, the interior of the Milano. This is quite delicious. Not helping! No more strength. And here we have the moment where Rocket escapes. Definitely one of my favorite moments in the movie. Uh, spent a lot of time just perfecting the sequence to make sure it worked exactly right. Uh, and people seem to really like it. And again, this is when things are really cooking in the movie. Uh, that shot of Rocket is just one of the best frame store of his little eyes smiling. It just it looks completely real. That's my friend, Emmett and he is um, an, an old, uh, old buddy of mine. Emmett and I, who, who plays the main guard, uh, we met on a double date <laughs> many years ago. We were dating roommates and uh, we went out to dinner one night and he was with his roommate and I was with my roommate and we found out that he was an actor and I was a writer and director and we became friends and I think my date lasted one more date and his date lasted maybe two more dates, but uh, we're still, Emmett and I are still friends today. And so when I came to England to shoot the movie, he was living there uh, shooting a soap opera or had just gotten done sh- shooting a soap opera and we decided to uh, give him a little little cameo, fun role. This sequence is a real combination of, of planning and just the, the great work of a bunch of people. There's parts that are completely CGI, parts that are Those are our CGI shots. That's completely practical. That's mostly CGI. We have a little bit of them in there and that's all CGI. That's practical, of course, with a little bit of CGI in the background. For me, when you make a movie, you really create the film before you ever set foot on set. And so it is about actually knowing exactly every little bit of the film that you're going to do before you get on set. Um, so that at least as your base, you have something that you can trust. You can always add improv lines or other things like that, as long as you have something good to begin with that's going to work whether or not you come up with a better improv line or not. And a lot of times, you you know, a lot of people think that there's a lot of improv lines in this movie, and there really aren't too many. There's a few. Um, But the truth is, is, you know, when i'm writing dialogue the whole thing is to try to get it to feel as natural as possible and one of the fun things about dealing with the guardians of the galaxy is that they're a bunch of aliens who talk like real people and to create that sort of natural conversation um, between these characters is one of the things that makes it funny and adds a lot of humor to it and you get a, a great amount of just fuel just from the fact that they're in outer space and they're aliens. Well, how's he gonna get to us? He declined to share that information with me. Well, screw this then. They wait around for some humi with a death wish. You got the orb, right? Yes. The uh, Guardians don't trust each other yet, so, of course, Quill kept the orb with him so that they wouldn't have it. I love this hallway, the colors in it, the grittiness of it. It's fantastic. And here we have quill meeting with spencer once again the mean guard and uh a great uh great song the rupert holmes song pina colada song which uh or is called escape the pina colada song sorry pina colada song is in parentheses definitely a catchy song it's a song i loved a lot when i was a little kid and it's a great uh, great opportunity to put it in the movie It's a very sad song actually if you listen to the lyrics are a very weird song because it's about a guy who puts um a personal ad looking for a woman even though he's married and 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 he meets this woman in the personal ads of this newspaper um who is also looking for a man who wants all the same things that the man wants pina colada songs and making love in midnight in the you know sand dunes or whatever they do and they all want these weird things and they meet up and they find that it's each other's husband and wife her boyfriend and girlfriend whatever they're cheating with each other i think i'd be i think it's it's a love song and they're happy at the end of it but i think i'd be a little 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 pissed off if my wife was putting personal ads in the back of a magazine even if i was doing it which i wouldn't do of course there we have quill's gift that his mother gave him which we're setting up for the end of the movie or if you want to blow up moons no one's blown up moons If you look in the background of the scene, you'll see Groot doing a bunch of goofy stuff. He's playing around with stuff on the walls, which I think is very funny. There is a whole, uh, you know, one of the, the cool things about making this movie and, you know, getting reactions to it on social networking sites like Facebook and Twitter is so many people write to me about how they've seen the movie two, three, four, five, six, seven times in a movie theater and that they have a different experience every time they see the movie because there's so much going on. There's so many different things happening. You get to see a lot of it. You get to see a different movie every time you watch it. And that certainly was one of the things that we we hoped would be the case when we were making this film. While we were making this movie, we all felt that we were creating something very special. Um, And we felt that we were were creating something very different. Um, We fell in love with the characters. We thought we were creating something different visually. And we definitely did made this film with our hearts and souls and, 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 and tried to create something that was was different and it, it, it was great uh, when the movie came out and performed so well.: Find a black light the Place would look like a Jackson Pollock painting: Well, there's the line that a lot of people talk about, probably more than any other, the Jackson Pollock line. It's another case of Chris Pratt and I uh, bouncing off of each other. It was an improv line, Chris Pratt said that black light he said you know if you put a black light up in here it would be a mess and then i went in and i ran on set and i whispered into his ear say that it looks like a, a jackson pollock painting in here and then he added that element to it and he did both of those lines it was something that we never thought we would put in the movie because it is a little bit um risque and we kind of did it for ourselves but when we were in the process of testing the movie we added uh, I, I said to Kevin uh, Feige, I'm like, let us let me just put that in one time and, and add it to, to get an, a laugh out of it for one audience, uh, you know, even if we take it out the next time, which we'll probably do. And we put it in the test screening, and it got the biggest laugh in the movie, and then we were trapped. We had to keep it in, which we did. That's my brother Sean Gunn there as Craglin. He also played Rocket on set, as I said earlier. And here we have Michael Rooker acting like a a nut. That really is Rooker's personality. God, we have some great outtakes from this scene because that's all pretty much improv noises, and there were a lot of times when I was... I have, I have on set what I call a God mic, which is a, a microphone that I can speak out over speakers to the actors, and through the God mic, I kept saying those different sounds, and then Rooker was trying to copy what my sounds were, and then I'd say something else, and he was copying the sounds, and it all sounds very ridiculous. The God Mike was a new experience for me because I have a very close relationship with my actors. And even though I like action sequences and big, you know, big movies, I really believe in the intimacy of, of working closely with actors and really trying to, to create real characters and real moments. Um, and uh, normally that means on a movie set that you shoot, do a take, and then you run into the actor and you whisper in the actor's ear some sort of notes that you give them about, you know, think of your mother dying or something like that. And it's a very private thing. But with a movie like this, which was much bigger than other movies I've done, my last movie cost $3 million, um, I had to get used to working on much bigger sets. And actually, the amount of time I would waste having to run from... Uh, the tents to the set would be a lot. So I just set up a big um, God mic where I could, uh, you know, talk through speakers to the actors. And we all got used to me giving them very intimate directions that the entire entire crew could hear. But the crew was so supportive that it, it became a very trusting environment because of that and I also thought that it, it kind of it made the crew feel more involved in in the making of the film and um a, a, a more of a closeness with the film and and it became more than just a job to so many crew members on set because they loved what they were doing and and they felt close to you know so many so many of the people that were you know in charge. The actors uh, are all such nice people in this movie. I've always had movies where you know. It's very important for me to choose actors that are easy to work with. Life is too short. It took me two years of my life to make Guardians of the Galaxy. I didn't do much else for that two years besides work on this film. And to work with an actor that's difficult uh, isn't worth it. This is a sweet moment with uh, Groot and this little child. Uh, Groot's flower it, it is probably inspired by by Frankenstein, the James Whale film, and that sort of sweetness that Frankenstein has. Uh, but 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 Groot doesn't throw the child in a river afterwards and murder her. That's uh that's something we chose we chose not to do. Here's the fasaki Erloni race, which was originally much longer, um, and it was simply we cut it down simply because. There's Marama Corlette who's the one who's announcing the Orlone race and she's a really really fantastic actress. She plays the pit boss and I was so sad to cut her role mostly she's sitting ne- standing next to to Drax there because she did such a great job but uh, you know these things happen sometimes. Man, you not believe Those were probably my favorite on days on, on set on on with the, the Ladies way. of the Boot of Jamaya. Wonderful fun days. This was actually one of the hardest scenes in the whole movie to shoot. Just this, this scene between two people um, on, a, on a balcony. And in fact, the scene was much longer originally. And I started doing the whole long scene between the two of them and I, I was dying on set. I just knew that I hated it. So uh, on set, I actually just changed all the dialogue around and I cut most of the scene and turned it into a much more simple scene uh, and I, I, I changed all their dialogue at the last minute, um, which was one of the, the, the wiser things I think I did on set because it would would have been a waste and it would have all gotten cut. And I think it works much better as it is. The backgrounds by Framestore are really beautiful here, uh, our sort of version of the romantic sky. And instead of fireworks in the background, we have the machines welding around them with the sparks flying That do something really beautiful. Chris and Zoe are both really good in this scene, but it was still very difficult. And an assassin. I do not dance. Really? This is another version of uh, of Chris and I working off of each other. This was all in the script, but it was in the script because Chris came into my office one day and he said, um, he said, I bet, I bet he loves Footloose. And what if he thinks of that as a legend? And I thought that was great. And then um, and then I added this stuff about uh, the great hero, Kevin Bacon, and Kevin's a friend of mine. He, did, he was the, the bad guy in my last movie, Super. So I was really excited for Kevin to see the movie, which he saw a few weeks ago and tweeted about and, and seemed to really love, which is great. I love the shot of Zoe. That's just one of my favorite shots of Zoe's acting in the whole movie. She's just so amazing in these small moments and how she's able to use her eyes and just Betray betrays so much emotion with the smallest actions. I really love. And here we have the welding. I really like this stuff. I think it's very sweet and romantic and I like it quite a bit. And then, like we do so much throughout the movie, we like to take these conventions that we, we enjoy the conventions, but then we turn them on their heads. And in this case, we turn it on its head with Gamora accusing Quill of pelvic sorcery. Pelvic sorcery that's another line that survived from my very first draft no. we did cut a big scene here from here from this sequence that's in the deleted scenes and it was simply because we needed to move the plot along and i feel bad about it it was a real nice scene where drax talks about his tattoos and what they mean to him and they're all about family and he ends up becoming very touchy and he and rocket start fighting and so in this, mo- in this, in the actual cut of the film, um, I'm hoping that it's not too confusing that they've been fighting off screen. Because we did explain it when we shot it, and then I decided to cut it to make it move faster. There's a lot of sadness in this scene. I thought this scene was very, very, very important to the movie, because from the very beginning, when Marvel first came to me with the idea of this film, I thought the only—there's Rocket's lip quiver, which I really Um, love—but it's a movie about a talking raccoon, and for me, it it was about creating a situation where if there was a talking raccoon, how could that talking raccoon be real? What would make him real? And it really was a little—he's this little innocent creature, uh, just an animal, who was experimented on and hurt and changed and manipulated uh for the benefit of someone else and he's very very uh alone because of that there really is nothing else like him his consciousness and his being is different from any other creature in the entire universe because he's one of a kind and he's very alone because of that and very sad and uh and i think that's what works for rocket is that he's so funny and he has all these humorous asides but at the heart of it all, he's a very, very, very sad creature, and he definitely is the most wounded of all of the Guardians of the Galaxy. And then behind, beside him is the character who's the least wounded, who is Groot. That's Ophelia Lovibond, who plays Karina, um, and then my friend Benicio del Toro, who plays the collector. Benicio is an actor unlike any other. He is truly, truly in the character. He goes very, very deep. All of the other actors on set worship Benicio. Uh, he is a very serious guy, um, but also at the same time a very laid-back guy who hangs out in the tent with the extras and chats to everybody on set. My uh, my set PA uh, was a girl by the name of Brittany who was a daughter of one of the members of Iron Maiden and benicio happened to be wearing an iron maiden t-shirt on set and i said hey uh, you know britney is the daughter of one of the members of iron maiden and he was so excited over that and had to take pictures of him with with britney to send to his friend so that he could they could he could share this great moment of meeting the daughter of one of the iron maiden guitarists and she was flipped out of course because benicio del Toro is wanting to take a photo with her well, then. let us see what you brought this is interesting. Chris is about to drop the orb. This is totally real. This was not planned. Chris actually dropped the orb. And then he, of course, recovered it with, with humor, but he actually dropped the orb. That was not planned at all. This is my best friend, Stevie Blackheart, uh, who Drax is about to attack. Stevie has been in a few of my movies, and he's been friends since my first film, Tromeo and Juliet. He played Benny Q. He runs a bar called The Edendale, uh, bar and restaurant in Silver Lake, and uh, he truly is my best friend in the entire world. I like to work with actors that I care about. Um, and so whether it's Stevie or Michael Rooker or Nathan Fillion or Greg Henry, my brother, Sean, filmmaking can be a very lonely experience at times. It's a, a very difficult. Uh, every thousand people coming to you at all times with questions very very little rest it takes a lot of mental energy a lot of concentration and to have people on set that you can occasionally just walk over to and put your arm on their shoulder and be like (sighs) take a deep breath um makes all the difference in the world to me to just have a few close friends around me at all times and i always pick up new close friends you know on this movie you know chris pratt and i became such good friends that he, you know, I had a, a home that was right next to the, the river in London and uh, and Chris Pratt uh, came out and visited one day and he liked it so much that he rented the home next to me. And my brother Sean lived with me, so we'd have a lot of late nights hanging out on the deck with me and Chris and my brother Sean and and Rooker would often come over and that would be sort of our crew while we were making the film. And my assistant Simon. What do you think, fancy man? Unit. Karina, even though she has been warned that this thing kills you, uh, I guess is hopeful that she could use it to kill the Collector, and I think in a way she's probably committing suicide. She'd She'd rather be dead and kill Collector than be living and be a slave. Oh, I forgot to talk about all the cool stuff in the background of the Collector sequence. Like the worms from Slither, and Howard the Duck is back there when we first walk in. And just all sorts of neat stuff in the background. Those are my favorite shots in the movie. This makes me laugh so hard. I just love the look on Rocket's face right there. (laughs) It makes me laugh every time. Well, many people here think that Chris is saying the F word, but she isn't. <laughs> I don't, he's just saying, what the? And then there happened to be that spark on set, which really was a mistake. That's Cosmo the dog. In the comics, he's actually one of the Guardians. Um, people often, I lo- right here, this shot with Rocket where he's pulling down his eyelids and you see the pinks of his eyes. That was something that was very important to me from the time I wrote that scene that we see the pinks of rocket's eyelids i always thought that was funny anyway cosmo the dog is somebody who people want to see in the guardians movies because he is a guardian in the in the comics but to be completely honest it's a difficult feat because cosmo is a real dog with real fur um and to have a real dog with real fur next to a cgi raccoon with cgi fur it's not a very helpful thing to do for the uh, look of Rocket. So it's he's actually a difficult character to incorporate into the Guardians. You're as I say to the sadness of Guardians fans all please, over the please. world. Oh, no. At last. I my Drax is a nut job who has called Ronin and thinks he's going to win this war because he's a maniac. And then we have Yandu and my brother Kraglin come to get them at the same time. In a minute, we're going to have what we, we call the pod chase, because it's a chase with pods and necrocraft, and it was one of the more difficult scenes to do in the movie. And one of the more difficult things about making a movie with this amount of visual effects is that... When you screen the movie, you test you test the, the movie to see if audiences like the film. But when you have two characters who aren't there and you have huge sequences like this pod sequence, which are largely CGI, um, it becomes very difficult to, uh, to to see if audiences really like the scene because we didn't get the pod chase done until, you know, not too long before... The movie was going to be released so this was always a scene that that people didn't react to as strongly as other scenes in the movie that were more practical so we just had to go on faith that this scene would be fun and at the end of the day it's really one of the more fun sequences to see and it's especially one of the more fun sequences to see when you're watching this movie in 3d um it it makes it a lot of fun and i love these little pods they're maybe my favorite You know spacecraft or flying craft in the film we looked at a lot of different references for our flying scenes in the movie everything from uh you know star wars to top gun to the right stuff and we wanted to create our our own sort of flight scenes but i will say that the right stuff was a big influence to us not so much in this scene but in the stuff at the ending of the movie with the way that the the, the spacecraft moved, we wanted to take something from the the 1960s Apollo spacecraft, uh, which is not the things that people normally think of influencing a science fiction film. Rocket gets a lot of the best moments in the movie, and this is certainly a pretty cool one where he just smashes through the sky. Those bad guys in the movie are Sakarin We get to see their faces later in the movie. They're pretty disgusting looking. They're a mix of practical and digital effects. I like to, as much as possible in movies, I like to mix practical and digital effects because it makes it much more difficult for audiences to know what is real and what is not. That shot there is, this shot is, is very largely practical, believe it or not, you know? um and then a lot of these shots that's that's practical that the inside of that spacecraft is real chris is in a real uh pod that he's driving that's real you know so a lot of this stuff is very very real and when you mix it in with something that's digital like that shot's 100 percent digital and that's both uh it becomes more difficult to tell what's real and what's not it's actually not my favorite shot in the movie but oh well (laughs) you have a few that you don't like but that stunt of twisting him around didn't work that well for me again i gotta really praise karen gillen she's she's such a great actress and you do get a lot of emotions that are happening And, and for me Nebula's not she's a pretty bad character. And she's definitely a sadistic character who enjoys the pain of others. But I don't know if she's 100% evil. Ronan is pretty close to 100% evil. But in a second you'll see Karen blow up uh Gamora and 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 kill her or she thinks she kills her and you'll see the look on her face and it's it's really it's 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 a it's she has mixed feelings about it. And it's one of the one of the nicer shots in the in the movie. It's our producer's Lou's favorite shot in the movie is the shot, that shot there is his favorite shot in the movie. Throughout this sequence, we have another great musical piece by Tyler Bates. And um, one of the things that I do uh, that other directors normally don't do Although I I will say I originally got the idea from Sergio Leone and Ennio Morricone who worked together on great spaghetti westerns, uh, such as uh, For A Few Dollars More, Good, the Bad and the Ugly, uh, Duck, You Sucker, Once Upon a Time in the West, which is my favorite. And Tyler wrote big pieces of music before we ever shot the film so that I could actually shoot the scenes to those pieces of music. I think that in filmmaking, music is uh, just a vastly underrated part of the puzzle. People think a lot about the visuals and they often, you know, make entire films and cut them together and finish them and then give them to a composer and say, hey, go write some music for this and expect those composers to do great work. But with me, I really think the music is an important part of fueling the film and if you write the music first, Um, you can create whole sequences around that music and really do something wonderful with it. And that's what this music is here. It drives a scene. And we play some of the music on set so that the cameras can move to the music and the actors can move to the music and they know exactly what to expect and they instantly get the tone of the scene. For instance, in this scene, if you didn't ever hear the music, you might think that the scene is going to be played more like an action sequence or... Uh, in a different way than it's played but it's actually a very emotional sequence this is a scene in which peter quill is actively sacrificing his life he's going to die if he saves Gamora. i want to talk for a second too about the science of this scene because there were a lot of things when we were doing test screenings people came and said that peter quill would die in the situation and scientifically that's that's not true uh, people actually could survive in space in the proper conditions for short amount of times. Um, a without having their skin covered or, you know, while having their skin exposed and B, if you emptied the, the air from your lungs, uh, for a very short while, uh, out in space, you could survive, uh, you know, the myths that people either burst into flames or explode as they do in total recall are just completely not true. Um, And we uh, consulted with the NASA scientists throughout the entire creation of this movie to make sure that, although it is a space opera and fun is the most important thing, that we could adhere to the laws of science wherever possible. Now, you may ask why they're clean here. And the reason they're clean is uh, because there's a a regenerative system they go through when they go through the intake into the collector. My assistant's smiling and laughing at me right now, but that's what I say. I was going to have them come out in all this goo, but I think we we're near the end of the shoot by this time. And the last thing we wanted was two actors covered in goo for half a day when we were trying to rush and get all of our sequences done. Chris is great in the scene because he has to be very funny at the same time he's getting tears in his eyes and he's really getting emotionally touched. And he's so good in that scene and, and so is Zoe. That's probably the grossest uh, 3D shot in the movie. If you see that, that shot in 3D IMAX, we actually cut out the uh, vomit that he's vomiting up so that it, it goes outside of the borders of the frame of the film. And it's a very interesting experience. It makes it feel like it's going right in your face. They're all idiots. Quill just got himself captured. None of this ever would have happened if you didn't try to single-handedly take on a freaking army! Here we have Dave really do some great work and you can see the rawness of his personality and then he's really in the moment in the scene. These days were so hard for Dave because it was actually very cold on these days. He was freezing cold. He had to walk around shirtless. We had to cover him in goo. He was getting over a a pretty bad sickness. He was screaming the top of his lungs the day before so he was losing his voice. And then he has to do this this you know scene, which is the emotional center of his character, and then be mocked by this little raccoon. But I love again we have some fantastic uh, CGI work by Rocket in this scene where he's really just a fantastic actor, and that's uh, that's 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 due to Framestore. Bradley's great in the scene; his voice is great. My brother Sean was magnificent on set. I have to say this was some of his best acting in the entire movie uh this day and and dave uh, relied heavily on my brother sean to create a lot of the dynamics between drax and rocket and it's interesting drax and rocket have a very special relationship in this movie and i don't know why that is part of it is because of their moment at the ending but i, I like the dynamics between the two of them Groot takes a leadership role here again some really great voice acting by Vin Diesel. There was a lot of debate on whether we should just cut out after Drax said 3 or whether we should have the rocket beating up grass moment. I was a proponent of keeping the beating up grass moment and so the rest of the Marvel folks went along with me. Um you know, I hope people like it. This is uh Ronan's story is pretty simple he's a he's a pretty simple bad guy, but this is one of the moments I really like for him in which he has some real balls actually, and he decides he's going to betray Thanos and it makes him a little cooler than uh, than a lot of villains simply because he is he's not just a a yes man he's actually a true rebel to the core and he does have his own set of beliefs uh even though those those beliefs are are pretty evil. There was a lot in the original script about Ronan's religious beliefs that got cut little by little from the film and, and i'm i miss them in a lot of ways i think uh but we did it to simplify things but Ronan's religious beliefs are basically that strength is virtue and weakness is sin um and so his moral vision of the world is it's very moral but it is something that would be considered evil uh by uh most people on planet earth but that is where his morals lie After so it makes sense that he's going to want to kill thanos who kind of pushed him around a little bit you kill him i will help you destroy a thousand planets you betray me huh? you steal my money Stop oh. it. leave him alone when i picked you up as a kid these boys wanted to eat you they never tasted terran before I saved your life! Oh, will you shut up about that? God! Twenty years you've been throwing that in my face. Like it's some great thing not eating me. Normal people don't even think about eating someone else. Much less that person having to be grateful for it. You abducted me, man. You stole me from my home and from my family. You don't give a damn about your terror. You're scared, cause you're soft. In here! Here, right here! Yondu! Listen to me! Ronin has something called this scene was actually very, very easy to shoot. I had set apart a, a, a lot of time to shoot this scene, and it went pretty quickly because it was near the end of the shoot, and all the actors were really in the pocket with their characters. They knew who their characters were. Quite honestly, Rooker just never he just never lets me down. Every single take of him always is good. He just never, ever lets me down. Um, and Chris was just the best he was in the entire movie here. Um so everybody was just just great. Captain's gotta teach stuff. That's a line that gets a lot of uh, laughs. Captain's got to teach stuff. There's also that rack focus to Kraglin a second ago after uh, Gamora's talking about the Power Stone, which I hope you better than to me is uh, pro- possibly that Kraglin is from Xandar, the planet they're talking about. The Ravagers are basically outer space bikers. They're just bad guys from all over the place that that are out for themselves, and they smuggle and kidnap and steal. And they're they're basically bad guys, but they're not evil because they don't do what they do to hurt other people. Uh, but they're but they're certainly not good. But it's one of the reasons why, again, why I chose Rooker. I think if Rooker's specialty is anything, it's it's playing characters who are morally. Ambiguous, who seem bad to begin with, but uh, they have something good in them. This goes all the way back to his first film role, which was Henry Porter of a serial killer, about a serial killer who's a very evil, bad guy, but still had some vulnerability to him. If you see him as Merle on The Walking Dead, he plays a racist jerk who also has a little bit of something you like about him. There's something good in him. Um, And I think Yandu takes those uh, same types of characteristics and really brings them to the forefront. Because Yandu's obviously, he's not evil, he loves Quill. And I think if you see the way Rooker plays the performance throughout, he is always rooting for Quill to give him a reason not to kill him. Whether it's at the end of this movie or in that last scene. This is a scene we call the 12% scene. This is the scene, when I first wrote the screenplay, I gave it to Marvel. And Marvel really liked the screenplay, and Joss Whedon read the screenplay, uh, who's a guy who gave me my first job ever in Hollywood, and I've known for a long time. And he said, I really like the screenplay, but I think there needs to be more James Gunn. And I said to the group, who was sitting there, uh, Kevin and, and Joss and Lou and Victoria, uh, that I was afraid to add too much humor to the movie, because I didn't want to have a movie that was too much of a comedy and confuse people about what the genre was. And Marvel said, no, we think the humor's great. Add more humor. And uh, I said, okay, you know, it's your funeral. And I went and I, I wrote this scene uh, right after that. And it's a seven-page scene of characters arguing. Uh, here's one of my favorite lines. Probably gets... I just saved Quill. Which is uh, Drax. that I'm on is not saving me. This line. All right, not that line. This line. Oh, no, I, was I was thinking of something else. Oh. Was, that's Which I think is really what this scene is about. It's It, it comes at a strange place in the movie where they're going to come together, and instead they spend the whole time arguing in a real infantile manner. Um, and yet it's a lot of people's favorite scene in the movie, and I think it really speaks volumes about who the Guardians are, and it also volumes about what the film is, because it goes from being this very lighthearted, dumb, like, arguing scene, and at the end of the scene, Chris brings real emotion into it. This scene, we shot for, a we had 11 and a half hours of footage shot for this one scene. I worked very, very hard because I knew if the, to get this the movie right, I really needed to get this scene right. We needed to really like the characters in, in this scene, and it needed to work dramatically, and it needed to work comedically as well, and it was a difficult balance to achieve, um, but we did it. Right here where Chris is giving his speech is an interesting thing because during filming, we shot Chris first and he gave his speech and he did a good performance. And then I turned around and did all the other characters and all the other actors. And at the end of it, Chris came to me and he said, I really think I could do better than what I just did. I really Now that I've gone through it so many times, I think that I can give it everything it takes. And so we shot him giving the speech again and he really nailed it uh, the second time around. And I really re- I remember saying one thing in him to particular in particular during this sequence, and I hope it's not giving away too much. But Chris was going on and on. And he was t- giving the speech to the other guys, and I said, "Okay, Chris." And I'm on the god mic, and I said, "Okay, Chris, just just stop now." And I'm gonna stop real soon because that's my favorite shot of <laughs> saying we're asking us to die. I always think that's funny that look on Rocket's face. Nobody else does, but me. Kevin makes fun of me all the time. Anyway. So Chris is giving the speech and I stopped him and I said, okay, Chris, now just stop and give the speech as yourself. Just give the speech as you. What would, you know, not to change the words, to use a dialogue that was in the script, because all this scene was 100% scripted. Um, every, every bit of this scene was scripted. Uh, but to say, you know, to say it as yourself and he did, and it was just this really magical moment. And that's, that's the version we use in the screen, the, the, the movie. Zoe was very sick on this day, I remember, so this day was a little bit more difficult on her. There was a flu going around, and I think uh, Dave got it first, and then uh, Zoe got it, and then uh, Chris and I got it, and we had to spend the last three days of shooting being very sick. And after we were done shooting, Rooker and I, we took a romantic trip to uh, Paris, which neither one of us had ever been there, so we went to Paris. I was still sick, but at least I got to see Paris. Oh, I'm wrong. There is uh, one bit of the scene that is improv that was not in the screenplay. And that is the jackasses line coming up, which was improv by my brother, Sean. And it's uh, all all this stuff was that 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 jackasses line was improv'd by Sean. Here we have Cherry Bomb by The Runaways, which I thought was an interesting song choice. All those colors back there, if you look at the colors of those screens, those are all colors from uh, 2001, the Stanley Kubrick film, (laughs) which I liked those colors, so we put them in that scene. And it's a little homage of sorts, or a ripoff, depends on what way you want to look at it. I wanted to to make these screens look very cartoony um, and, and use a different sort of technology where we have these screens that we move back and forth with these flat 2D images to create battle plans and that's the ravagers way of doing things one of the things that uh, you know when we're creating different cultures for the film it was about creating you know what is the prior right priority for that culture technologically like in on planet earth you know all of our technology is pretty much geared towards either making things easier or uh, being fun making things fun Uh, so that's really what our technology is about. But if a different culture has a different priority, that would be, you know, something, uh, different. For instance, the ravagers, their priority is really a sense of touch of feeling things. So all of their technology is very, you know, when they have a spacecraft, sure, you could probably make a spacecraft that didn't have a rumble of the engine below your feet, but in this, in, 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 but because they're making things they want to feel, uh, they have more control over it That it is, has to do with touch and feel. And so all of their technology is based around feeling something, including those screens. And it's also because I love muscle cars and I, I drive a muscle car and, and their cars are, or their spaceships are a lot like Dodge Challengers, really. Here we have the sort of iconic walking down the hallway together in slow motion scene, but we mess with it by having a raccoon grab his crotch and gamora yawning and chris scratching his nose there's a little frog and all of Yandu's little collection of cute little figurines that he likes that come and it plays into the very ending of the movie this is a terrible plan hey you're the one who said you wanted to die among friends And then we have the technology of the Zandarians, which is much different. It's much more uh, advanced in certain ways. Um, I really wanted to create holograms that were not completely like, you know, that that just looked pretty much, pretty much like the real thing. If that makes sense. He says he's an a-hole, but he's not. And I'm quoting him here. There's a great line by Peter Serafinowicz where uh, John C. Riley said, he says he's an a hole, and Peter Serafinowicz turns to Naomi, the girl that's standing next to him, and says, asshole, explaining to her what he's saying uh, that we cut from the movie. And, and every time I watch the scene, I, I, I mildly regret having cut that moment um, and wish it was still in the movie. Ronan's ship is the Dark Aster. It's miles and miles across. With the Dark Aster, I really wanted to create something that felt very heavy. Like there's there's nothing about that thing that should be able to fly. You know, when we look back at the pyramids in ancient Greece, you know, we think, how did people from that time make those giant things? And it almost seems frustrating in how difficult it would be to create something so enormous. And I think the Dark Aster is the same way. It's just totally huge. It doesn't look like it should fly. It looks like it's made out of stone and concrete and um it's a paradox in that way but somehow it's able to to take off here we have the guardians theme again which i as stated before really love we actually had a really hard time coming to the guardians theme tyler wrote a lot of different versions of the guardians theme i really wanted something really thematic and he would send me little things he had written that sounded like they were performed on a Casio tone and he'd send them to me on my my iphone and I would, I would listen to them and uh, and kind of strike them down. And then he sent me this theme for something else. And it was a very, very simple little theme and it wasn't even for the Guardians theme, but I, I heard it and I was like, oh my God, that's it, that's it, that's the Guardians theme. And I took his little Cassio tone version and put it over uh, the scene the kiln when the, the Guardians first appear together and it just sounded perfect. Um, and uh and i i I told tyler and then he developed it further to make it what it is today here we have my brother being a hard ass again a lot of these these fight scenes they're fighting in date these are much more like um aerial battles and they are like spaceship fighting scenes these are not spaceships they're much more they are spaceships but they're much uh we wanted they're in at Earth's atmosphere, or not in Xandar's atmosphere. So they have a different feel to the battle sequences. That's actually a little bit more like Top Gun or The Right Stuff, or has elements of those types of movies more so than, say, space movies that you're familiar with. And I wanted it to be very chaotic and difficult. It seems overwhelming. And here we have the Nova Corps saving the day coming to the rescue Peter Serafinowicz as Denarian Saul Denarian Garth and Saul his first name is Garth and, although we don't say it in the movie this is Denarian Saul of the Nova Corps With a record I advised against trusting you here they got my dick message prove me wrong I really like Peter Serafinowicz as an actor and as a guy We call this the uh, "fishing with dynamite" sequence, because uh, originally there was a, a line about fishing with dynamite, which is what he's doing. He's basically just plowing down a bunch of a bunch of the with a, guns made to shoot down other ships, so they don't really stand much of a chance. I love uh, that's that was uh, Dave Batista laughing was not in. That's obviously one of the things that gets the most. I don't know, obviously, but the uh, Kevin Bacon line is one of the things that gets referred to the most to me. People talk about it a lot. But when Dave was laughing, that was something that I I thought of on set and talked about over uh, while we were shooting. and, And just went up to Dave and said, what if you found this really funny, that you love the fact that you're in this great danger and that Quill's shooting all these things. And just laughed the whole time, hysterically, like a madman. And he started laughing, and we just we, we had a very hard time keeping it straight because it was so funny to us. Because there is something about Dave Batista when he's sitting there laughing that's like a big giant baby laughing in his seat. That's the girl next to uh, Glenn Close. Again, is uh, Michaela Hoover, who is one of my best friends. She was in uh, my web series Human Z and my web series uh, Sparky and Michaela. She was also in uh, my movie Super. Here we have the NovaNet sequence. This is something. Uh, this sequence I actually drew before I ever wrote it, <laughs> which was I was trying to figure out how we could make the NovaCore seem a little bit more powerful and impressive, and do some yet still technologically unique. And I came up with this NovaCore sequence, and and then and then drew it, and uh, and we had a, a a great company working with us who did the great company by the name of Third Floor who helped me to uh, animate the sequence and, and put it in action and they helped to design a sequence for me. I can barely see. This is what we call the Groot Spore sequence. Um, it's another really beautiful uh, sequence done by MPC, which is another terrific sequence in 3D. Maybe my favorite moment in 3D actually. And there is something really beautiful about the character of Groot. It's also, uh, the score is also just one of my favorites here. Tyler Bates' music is just completely beautiful. The first time I heard it, I got teary-eyed, and I remember looking over at my assistant Simon Hatt, who we call Love. Simon Crybaby Hat because he cries all the time when we show him scenes from the movie, and he had tears in his eyes. It was very sweet, but I think it's beautiful. And of course, we undercut it with Drax being an idiot. France. You, Quill, are my friend. Thanks. This dumb tree, he is my friend. Mm. Mm. And this green horse, he too. Oh, you must stop! Oh. Ah. Gamora, look at what you have done. You have always been weak. You stupid traitor. People ask me how long it takes uh, Nebula to get into makeup. I think it was about... A little over four hours by the end of uh by the end of the shoot uh, drax was a little longer than that um he had to have his arms up the whole time and zoe was actually not that much shorter her makeup was simpler but zoe uh doesn't sit still so she's running around all the time it takes her a little bit longer she's a very fiery personality um this scene is definitely our our sergio leone spaghetti western scene and 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 Yandu is our Sergio Leone spaghetti western character. That's my voice by the way doing uh, the Sakarn. Yeah. I like the scene a lot. This is a uh, Yandu's a very powerful character, and one of the, th- one of the reasons I, I picked Yandu from the comic books is that his superpower is so interesting. He's a little bit different in the comics. He he actually has a, a bow with his arrow, but I just went with the whistling thing and, and took away the, the bow, which didn't seem as necessary. Here we learn that because of her uh, cybernetics and modifications, uh, Nebula has healing powers, and... Makes her a pretty formidable foe. This is actually one of the more fun sections of the movie for me. It just really moves very quickly and there's a bunch of things happening all at one time. It took a lot of love and care to get this sequence to the right place, both in terms of the shooting of the sequence and in terms of the editing of the sequence. Here we have the suicide bombers, the Sakarin, who obviously love Ronin and are willing to do anything for him. That's Barit, actually, from the beginning of the movie, saving that young girl, which a lot of people miss. And coming up we have that girl, little girl and her mom. That's actually, we learn at the end of the movie, that's Roman Day, John C. Riley's wife and daughter. They have big eyes. And Rocket's doing something heroic. I can't believe I'm taking orders from a hamster people have brought up the fact that there probably are not hamsters in outer space, and here's how that works. If you look closely in the mugshot scene, there is a translator in Peter Quill's neck, um, which means that all of the characters are not necessarily speaking English, but they are able to have a common tongue because they have have, uh, 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 translators implanted in them. So whatever is a hamster-like creature is probably what denarian saul is talking about there also it was funny so i kept in the movie i really like this shot everybody shoot them before they hit the ground this is uh, definitely inspired by space invaders and was described as space invaders in the script where the characters are all shooting down the aliens before they approach the planet fight scene by uh tommy harper tommy harper and james young uh, were the guys who did the fight coordination the scene they also did all the fight coordination for captain captain america 2. really great guys very talented guys and they helped to make this give the scene a lot of energy Finger to the throat means death. <laughs> jaimin hunsu by the way is great in this moment where his going out of whack people love that line uh huntsu plays korath he's a fantastic actor and another really just great guy who uh we were lucky to have do his piece in the movie here we have groot uh killing people for an awful long time people kept trying to get me to cut it down but i uh, thought it was funnier when it was longer sometimes i wish it was a little longer but the smile is really what did it. And uh, that is uh, one of the nicer moments in the movie. Here we have the Nova Net failing against the power of the Dark Aster, which is just a little stronger than them at the end of the day. Not to mention when Ronin uses a Power Stone against them. my friend nick about to get killed he's dead there will be no nick holmes as a ravager in the sequel unfortunately and here we have the sad demise of Denarian saul who reaches out to his new friend rocket for one last moment before he dies <laughs> they have a fantastic relationship that they've been talking over the intercom for a few minutes anyway i really like how this looks I think it's a beautiful moment. Well, you gotta hurry. The city's been evacuated, but we're getting our asses kicked down here. So here we have the uh, we've we've set up very you know, very specifically, what's supposed to be happening. All the guys are trying to get to Ronin to kill him with the Hadron Enforcer. Uh, that's what we believe is, is going to happen, and that's the goal of our team. I love this uh, seeing Zoe's skeleton. Here we have Nebula's. It's not her demise, but her escape. Nebula has a strange out in this movie where she just sort of decides to leave. Um, which I like. She says, I know you're both crazy there. Chops off her own hand, which makes her pretty hardcore. That's my friend Dave Yarvo is a Ravager who she throws out. Yarvo, we call that Scream the Yarvo. We use it earlier in the movie as well. And here are the guys. Getting closer to their goal. They face Ronin. This is a moment that I hope you're having a nice uh, home theater while watching this scene because in a movie theater, it's one of the cooler moments because you realize how loud everything has been for a long, long time, and then suddenly things get really quiet and nothing has worked at all like it's supposed to. I think it's a fun thing to do in movies is we set up a goal for our characters, our goals, our characters fulfill that goal, and then it just doesn't work at all as expected. I do the same thing in in, in my movie Slither. There's a grenade that the lead character gets that is supposed to blow up. Uh, They spent a lot of time getting this grenade and then it just doesn't work. Goes off in a swimming pool and this is the same sort of moment in this movie. But we've got a crazy raccoon on our side here. One of the difficulties, of course, with this movie was I really wanted to love these characters and uh, share with the audience the love that that I have for these characters and um, that I believe that they have for each other and that they find with each other. And so this moment is really that moment of sacrifice on the part of Groots where here he's making the choice and you can see him make the choice there in his eyes for a moment where he decides to do something he's seeing what happens and then he decides to sacrifice himself right here in this moment and it really is uh one of my favorite moments in the movie and again another uh this is the Groot Spore theme just played a little bit more grandly uh Tyler Bates music which really helps to fuel the scene and Shows where it is. And Zoe is just so great in the scene. I just, the way she uses her eyes and the love she had for Groot. And it was very strange because we had the music blaring on set while we shot this scene. And Zoe looked up at Groot and she's just started crying uh, when we were shooting the scene because she knew what he was doing. And uh, Groot wasn't really even there. Um, but she felt it. And I, I think that Zoe's performance with her face is just especially here is just to tell so much of the story of what's happening with Groot and who he is and then uh we have this moment which uh to me is one of the more touching things in the movie and this moment here with tears in his eyes and it's really very 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 touching When I first uh, was working on the screenplay, I came up with the We Are Groot line, which was gonna be, it was a completely different situation in which Groot was gonna go up and give this speech where he was gonna say, We Are Groot at the end of the movie or near the end of the movie. Uh, And instead, uh, this moment happened um, and uh, and created what we call the Groot Cocoon, which is what he, he uses to save those guys. Uh, And the Groot Cocoon sequence uh, became uh, the We Are Groot sequence. Here we have uh, Ooh Child by The Five Stair Steps, um, which is, of course, just a wonderful song. uh, But, you know, in this movie, we use some songs as they were intended. And some songs, such as Fooled Around and Fell in Love, that plays on the balcony uh, and it, it, it really is saying what's happening. You know, Quill fooled around and fell in love with Gamora in a way. And here we have uh, the movie. The song plays almost ironically because it certainly doesn't Things like seem like things are going to get brighter. It seems pretty dark and, and awful. And we have the uh, citizens coming out. There's the broker who has changed a little bit since the beginning of the movie. And then we have this uh, another great piece of music here with Tyler Bates coming over as Ronan is f- totally fine. There's a lot of question here when Rocket runs at Ronan whether he is running at Ronan to actually try to hurt him or if he is actually trying to get Ronan to move him over to this spot where he knows that they have a chance to do something else. Here are the characters' look from one to the next. The time has come to rejoice and renounce your paltry gods. And then we have one of uh, what often people talk to me about is one of the riskier moves in the movie where Peter Quill begins to sing and dance. And it was risky, uh, and the reason it was risky is because it was in the screenplay and it was it was funny in the screenplay, but never great just kind of funny, but I really felt like if Chris could do a great performance in the scene, that the scene would be great. And this is truly the magic of Chris Pratt, because we just gave him full reign, and he went and took it, and we kept throwing stuff at him, and he kept taking that, and uh, he added this <laughs> a little bit, tossing it to Gamora, and then Gamora shaking her head, and it really is just chris pratt that it's really truly a shining moment in the movie in a lot of ways because that is uh if chris pratt didn't work in the scene the scene wouldn't work other scenes in the movie um you know you can kind of fake your way through but that one you can't this is a piece of music we call black tears And it was called, again, this was music that we played on set while we were shooting this entire sequence, sometimes with a phantom camera at extremely high frame rates. But it's, um, it was a scene that took a lot of work. And it was something that we had to show many times in a the theater with absolutely no <laughs> effects whatsoever. And here we have sort of really what the center of the movie is about. At the be- at the center of Guardians of the Galaxy, uh, it is about a story of a son's love for his mother and a-, and a mother's love for her son. It's a mother-son story at the center of it all, and this is the moment where peter quill accepts that his mother loves him and and takes her hand and has a a shift in within himself and the guardians in turn each have a shift where they're all characters who from the beginning of the movie each think that they're jerks they think themselves are jerks and they have beliefs about themselves that they're bad people or bad creatures or whatever they are and in this moment they find out that that there's something more important to them than just themselves and that's each other. And in some cases I think it's a deeper love for a society that Peter has and Gamora has. And with Rocket I think it really is just a love for Peter and Drax and Gamora and Groot. And there's nothing ironic there from my point of view it really is just It's about family, it's about love, and it's about these characters that hopefully find something in themselves that's a little better than what they thought was there. And if there's anything that comes out of the movie for people, maybe they can see that within themselves. Well, 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 quite the light show. We have Rooker showing up. By the way, that shot of Rocket's little hand coming up to grab... uh, Drax is one of my favorites in the movie. We call that the Michelangelo shot. Peter, you can't. Peter. You got to reconsider this, Yondu. I don't know who you're selling this to, but the only way the universe can survive- This is another interesting performance by uh, Rooker because in a second, Quill gives him the orb and Rooker, or Yondu, he's not dumb. And if you look at the way Rooker plays this scene—and you'll ask, have to ask him if this is totally true—I'm not sure that he doesn't know that that orb doesn't have in it what he hopes it has, and that he just doesn't want to kill Quill. It's especially from this moment right here. See that? He knows. <laughs> He knows. <laughs> yeah, Quilt out okay. Here we have. Probably we learn. To his dad, like tired to do. Yeah. My brother Sean Gunn is craggling. Tells the audience what's going on. And he did a great job in that scene because that's just pure exposition so that Sean had to deliver in a way as if it was real dialogue. And then we reveal what many people are not surprised to see. the only family I had. No. He wasn't. This next sequence uh, is uh, to me, it's my my favorite moment in the whole movie. And um, it's the one moment that really does move me when I watch it. Uh, Bradley is so good in this scene. And Sean and Dave were so good in the scene when they first shot it and Dave really wanted Sean to be there for his acting, and so Sean is in most of these shots with Dave, and we just took him out. But, boy, it's just... And the animators uh, did a great job. Just in this moment here. That's just one of the best acting of Rocket, (laughs) and Dave is so good in that moment there. That, to me, is the best moment in the whole movie. Why would you even know this? When we arrested you, we noticed an anomaly in your nervous system, so we had it checked out. I'm not Taryn We almost didn't put this scene in the movie, actually. We almost just went directly to Glenn Close thanking them because we did have Craglin and Yandu explaining that his father was something else, but we decided to, to keep it in the film. We wanted to be careful not to have too many endings in the movie, so doing all of the stuff after they save the day and destroy Ronan Uh, We need to make it as fluid as possible because there were a lot of different things to tie up. And we have Rocket with little baby Groot. He has something to show you. Thank you, no problem. Because we did have other scenes in this sequence that I liked a lot that we just cut because it was just too too many things happening. In the comic books, of course, Drax is out to kill Thanos. He has been created to kill Thanos, basically. And so here we find that Drax has at least a little bit more in common with his comic book counterpart than we initially thought. And of course, when you're making a movie like this, you know, you, you owe a great debt to the, the creators of the comic book characters and the stories that they told. Um, and you want to remain as true to the spirit of those characters as you can, while at the same time creating a movie with characters that work the best they possibly can as um, a cinematic. Uh, entity. And I, I think that we found a good balance. You know, we we changed some characters a lot, obviously. Yandu's much different than he is in the comics. You know, Drax is much different. Drax's personality is a lot different. But there's a, a lot of what the... I think I think we we struck a good balance. This was one of the worst days on set, actually. It was just a miserable, miserable day, because we were on the roof of this actual building in the center of downtown London. And there were, it was a Sunday, so there were church bells ringing every 15 minutes. And there were jets going overhead constantly. And it was, uh, the sun was changing. So that one moment it would be extremely bright. And the next moment it would be darkened and cloud cover. And it was every single thing just didn't work together to create something good. And the fact that we got a decent scene out of it is uh, truly a miracle. And we have Peter Quill's present from his mother. And Chris is, uh, again, Chris proves why he is the only guy of his type in film today, that he has this vulnerability to him, yet he has a masculinity, and he has a a sense of humor, and all of those things come together to make what I believe is, uh, you know, the greatest movie star today, which is Chris Pratt. And this moment... This was, this, this was dialogue uh, by uh, Laura was recorded in the back of a car. <laughs> and I was sitting in the car next to Laura as she was recording this dialogue because we were on set and we had her come in to record the dialogue so that Chris could listen to it as he was, you know, we were shooting this scene on set. And, uh, and I was sitting next to Laura and I got tears in my eyes when she was reading her letter to Peter Quill as I was sitting there next to her which we only did one or two times and and used used the one that touched me. I have to trust your instincts a lot, I think, as a filmmaker, and what is it that moves you. Sometimes it can betray you, but sometimes, usually it won't. And here we have the true song of a mother singing to her son. It was very difficult. I wasn't sure I wanted to use this song because it's been used a lot. It's very familiar to people and... Most of the other songs have not been, but it just told the story perfectly. This moment here is just one of my favorite little bits in the movie. Gamora says earlier that she doesn't dance because she's a warrior, and here she does this. Which is very subtle, but it's one of my favorite moments in the movie. And this is another one of my favorite moments, which was more in the script, and it's Yandu who pretty much knows that there's not an Infinity Gem inside that thing by this point. And then he's been ripped off, but he's been giving the thing he loves the most, which is a cute little character that he collects <laughs> that we've also seen earlier in Quill Ship. Of course, the Infinity Gem is safe. And here we reveal that John C. Riley's family is the same family that Rocket saved earlier on the bridge. I'm not sure how much people pick that one up, but yeah, so the song is really just as it's a song from a mother to a son. And it's hard to have a song about love that doesn't necessarily seem like it's about sexual love and Ain't No Mountain High Enough seemed to work perfectly. We have a special relationship between the two guys. And then we have little baby Groot coming back to life. What should we do next? something good something bad a bit of both we'll follow your lead Star-Lord and we end with one of my favorite songs of all time probably the greatest pop song ever in my mind which is I Want You Back by the Jackson 5 and it's hard not to be happy when you hear this song it's almost like cheating at the end of the movie the Guardians of the Galaxy will return. We 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 just needed something to work out with the beat of the mu- <laughs> the beats of the music. We wanted people to stay in the theater for this, um, which is a sequence that was in the script, but it was written as the end tag of the movie. We were gonna put it at the very end, but then we liked it so much <laughs> that we're like, we can't let audiences leave without seeing this moment, and it was just such a great way to and the movie people really are happy when they see this little baby Groot dancing by the way that's me dancing that is me motion referenced dancing as baby Groot it's my dance moves my buddy dave yarvo saw the movie with me and he's like that's you dancing isn't because he recognizes my my wonderful sweet dance floor moves and my unique dance style as baby Groot's dance style and that's that's it do I keep talking during this part? <laughs> I don't know. We gotta. Jamie Christopher should be brought up. My first AD, man, because Jamie Christopher is, you know, just such a wonderful, uh, wonderful, truly talented man um, to help put this whole thing together. I think it's so, fair that it, uh, so unfair that an assistant director is at the end of the film, um, because they do such great work and uh, and they work as hard as anyone else on a movie set. Uh, and, and he just, uh, he really helped put this movie together. I also gotta, you know, you know, um, also uh, Ben Davis, the cinematographer, his work should be pointed out because he was such an, in, an, an important part of making this movie. Steph and Susan, our visual effects supervisor and, 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 uh, and visual effects uh, producer, they were so important in creating this movie. Um, there are a billion names. I actually uh, saw the movie in a the theater a little while ago and was just surprised by how many people, because most of these people I honestly don't I don't know. Um, but they were all working for somebody who was working with me, and there we go, Brittany Smith right there. That was my set PA. Brittany's job was to follow me around no matter where I went. Uh, so uh, she was very good at it. I didn't even realize she was doing it for the first part of the movie. Uh, but after a while, I I, I got wise, and I be in the bathroom and find out that Brittany was waiting outside. Simon Hayes uh, is somebody I want to bring up because he was the uh, sound man on set. He did an amazing job. And, of course, Alex Byrne, who did the costumes in the movie, is somebody who I'd like to, to point out because she does such great work. Sarah Finn, our casting director, and Reg, our UK casting director, did great work. Sarah Finn, you know, when... She first brought to me Chris Pratt. I thought it was a terrible idea because I thought of him as the chubby guy on Parks and Rec. And she was the one that kept pushing and pushing and pushing until I would see Chris Pratt audition. And when I saw him audition, I knew within 20 seconds he was the guy. So Sarah deserves a lot of attention. David White, who did the prosthetic effects, um, did such marvelous work. My assistant Simon is supposed to be writing down names of people that I'm forgetting, but he's not doing a very good job. He's just kind of looking at the credits like a like a lunatic, staring, being a maniac. Who else did I forget? Simon. That's every... <laughs> Simon says, that's everybody that matters. <laughs> there we go. Bill Mantlo, Keith Giffen, all, uh, you know, Jim Starlin. All these guys, the original guys who created these characters for the comics. Of course, Andy Lanning and uh, Dan Abnett, who created the 2008 run of Guardians of the Galaxy. They are the guys who really sort of laid the, they, they planted the seeds of this movie. So I'm so grateful to them. Um, you know, so many people, all these these names of people that do spend countless hours doing little tiny things in the movie. Uh, And I'm, I'm so incredibly grateful to all of the people that put their time into this movie and put their hearts into the movie. And, you know, the people who worked on set and, of course, the actors. Look at that. Look at all those people. They're pretty amazing, really. It really takes more than a village, I think. It takes a megacity to create a movie like this. Well, I guess that's about it for me in this director's commentary. Uh, So I want to thank all of you guys for uh, either buying or stealing or borrowing this DVD or Blu-ray or whatever format you're listening to this. You know, hello people from the future that are listening to this on your brain implant. I hope you guys are enjoying this director's commentary, which I think will last for hundreds and thousands of years. <laughs> but really, thank you guys for watching the movie. The interaction with the fans of this film all along the way has been such a, a wonderful uh, experience for me because I know it, this movie has touched people's hearts all over the world. And, uh, you know, every night before I went to bed, I would think of that, uh, you know, while I was making this film hoping that this movie could uh touch people you know maybe when uh they walked into the theater they'd like the person sitting next to them a little bit more when they walked out of the theater skywalker sound boy simon should have written them down but he didn't because he's he's an idiot he's an idiot and uh skywalker sound did a marvelous job on this movie and there's our great soundtrack by all of our great uh Great pop artists of the 1970s, wow. I got a, an email from Eric Carmen the other day in the Raspberries. So, thanks to Dave Jordan for being the, the music uh, supervisor who put put all those songs together and got us every single song I asked for. All those songs were in the screenplay and every single song I asked for, uh, Dave Jordan got for me, which I, I appreciate. He did a good job and it wasn't that crazy people keep thinking it's gonna be crazy crazy expensive and of course it's expensive for a low budget film but you know it wasn't too bad so thanks to all those artists for letting us use their songs and i hope they are reaping the rewards of having that soundtrack at number one there's cosmo the dog in our tag scene and benicio del toro who did not know he was when he was shooting this scene that he was going to look over and see howard the duck that's seth green As Howard the Duck, my good, good friend, Seth Green, who I've known for many, many years. And he came in and did us a favor as Howard the Duck. And that doesn't mean that there's going to be a Howard the Duck movie, although I know you're hopeful. Love you all.